Welcome to episode four of our benefits breakdown. This is Vanessa Longnecker. I'm here with my teammates, Jared and Adam, as we welcome a very special guest, Rebecca Shipley, who leads our total rewards practice here at Hayes and Brown and Brown. Say hello, team. Hey, afternoon, Jared Bocat here with you. Hey, everyone. Adam Compton, excited to talk all things total rewards. We'll have some fun today. Awesome. Well, what is Total Rewards? Certainly, it is a buzzword in the marketplace. It's not new, but it's absolutely evolving. And it's something that, if it's not on your radar, we should be having some great dialogue around today. Rebecca, can you start by leading us a bit in what is Total Rewards? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Total Rewards, when we think about Total Rewards, we like to think about it in a way of what is it? What is everything you offer your employees in exchange for their contributions to your company? So you are offering them a number of things and in exchange, they give their contribution and their skill set to the company. So that can range from anything from benefits and compensation, which we find to be really the bedrock around total rewards. And a lot of companies do describe total rewards in just those two things. But it can also just run the whole gamut all the way to culture, the type of culture you offer, um, to the voluntary benefits, to, you know, such special things as sabbaticals and time off. So it runs the gamut. And it's almost, I think of the initial conversation, and I think varies from large clients, from national players to maybe mid to large clients in the thousands or hundreds of employee size, but it it varies to each company. What is total reward? So what does that first conversation look like? You walk in, like I am the total rewards expert. What does that first discussion look like when you meet somebody new and, and, and kind of how do you lay that baseline? Yeah, it's a good question Um, because we don't even know walking (laughs) into it, what it's going to be is, you know, as we like to, you know, initially come in and we we try to understand the organization first and understand like what are all the things and we're trying to get our arms around it. But it does, I think you make a good point. It does seem to vary by size of company. The larger companies, right, they have the ability and frankly, the budget to afford someone like me to be on their staff. And so they get to have specialized skill set. And that's why when you think about some of these bigger companies have it, it's because they have, they have people that are specializing in total rewards, in compensation, in benefits. The smaller organizations, while it's equally as important, it's harder for them to get into that because they tend to have HR generalists in place that are running everything, you know, from onboarding, recruiting to benefits to offboarding. And so they don't have the luxury of having that, those specialists on, you know, on staff and on board. So that's why I think you see a difference between the large companies and the small companies. And, and frankly, that's actually why we got into, you know, offering this practice is because those small to mid-sized companies, being able to identify and articulate your total rewards offerings or your total rewards philosophy is equally as important. And we're able to help fill that gap. So tell us, Rebecca, I'm a HR generalist or an HR director of a 200 employee company, 250 employees. Mm-hmm. What's some things that I could be doing versus something that, and then maybe we can talk about the segment size of a thousand plus employees, but that that smaller mid-market organization who's trying to offer a robust total rewards program, what are some things that they could be focused on that they should be, maybe should be focused on, is probably a better way to phrase that, that maybe they're not mm-hmm. today. 
Yeah, I would say the best thing they could do is just be able to articulate and explain what all their offerings are. And a lot of companies do that via a total reward statement, right? So they can tell their employees, here's every single thing we offer, and then and then being able to quantify it, right? There's so many people who get benefits and they're not quite sure of the cost share, right? Like what does the employer pay for it? They know their base salary. And a lot of people think that's all they're getting paid. But as soon as you quantify, what is the employer paying for benefits? What is the 401k employer's match? You know, what part of your salary is actually designated for time off and holidays? You're still getting paid. And so I think employers, they do so much work to to put these offerings together But being able to bring it all together, articulate it, again, maybe in the form of a statement, is is super powerful. And I actually think it's a differentiator for employers so that they can talk to their employees in a more holistic way instead of it just being about how much is my base pay. Do you see, as a way to quantify that, uh, a measuring stick, like it's salary plus X equals a certain total rewards as an average that you're seeing out there? Is there a way that employers can help have those conversations because seeing that from a, a management perspective, even in the haze, when we look to hire somebody and we're looking to bring somebody on, we have to say, okay, we're going to have to pay them X, but then you add in everything else. We have to account for that. And I, you, to your point, I don't think it, the average employee is realizing that. Right. Right. Cause what, you know, what average employer says, how much is this office space that I'm sitting in? Right. But it's a real thing. And so, you know, as you were saying that, Jared, like I was thinking, like, envision a pie chart, right? And all the different slices of pie that employers offer people. So, you, you know, the big chunk will be base salary, right? But then you think about benefits and then you think about, um, like I said, the 401k and you could go down a path of, you know, office space and some of the voluntary, you know, all those things that you offer. And that's all the stuff you can quantify, right? And and to some degree, that's a little bit easier than things you can't quantify, right? Like, how do you quantify culture? But that's why people either stay at a company or leave a company. And how do you quantify that we train our managers to be good managers? Because if you look at the the stats right now, the number one reason that people leave is because of their boss, right? And it could just be as simple as the boss hasn't been trained to be a good boss. And how do you quantify that? But, um, you know, I worked with a client once and they were retail and they didn't, you know, they weren't paying these huge professional salaries, right? Like a lot of people were making federal minimum wage. And, you know, that's not a lot for people to live on. But I did a focus group and the number one thing they said to me Comp was number three Hmm. on the list. The number one thing they said is train our managers better because they're making our life hard. And so, so it's those things that when you think about being an HR person, you know, or thinking about the kind of culture you want or the kind of company you want so that you can attract and, and when you have the employees, engage them and retain them, right? If you think about all those three things, you have to think about all the things that go along with that. When you're trying to engage someone, having a strong manager is really important and having a, a great culture is what keeps people engaged. 
I'd love to unpack that a little bit further because I think yeah. we're, maybe we're all thinking this is if people work on our teams, oh my gosh, do people not like us or what are we doing wrong? <laughs> what can we do? And I just love to think like, what does that conversation look like when you identify that maybe the people yeah. aren't happy with the training? What are some things that, that HR teams could actionably do to get that process clearer so we don't have that fear of people even? Yeah. I mean, the number one thing, it's the first thing I do in, in any organization I walk into is I don't walk in pretending like I know what the answers are, is I just listen first. And I think a lot of companies get into this place of they think they know what's going to make a difference. They think they know what people want or what's going to make them happy. And they haven't taken the time to listen to those people, right? So the number one thing I would advise for any organization is, is one, you know, talk to your people and listen to them. And I'd almost think about it in, in chunks, right? Is talk to your executive team first and, you know, and understand what's important to them. What's their philosophy? You know, what is their mission? What are they trying to accomplish and what kind of talent, what kind of environment do they want? And then, you know, talk to the management group, right? These are the day-to-day people that know they're feeling it. And the managers are, you know, your liaison, right? They're in between, those, you know, the group of executive and employees. And then, you know, figure out a way to talk to and listen to your employees. You know, I love doing focus groups. And I'll tell you what, people will talk to you. You know, if you ask them, they'll tell you. And you just have to be willing to listen to it. And Adam, I'll tell you this funny story. I was up working with a client and the CEO said, I know that if I put in a dog park, it's going to make everybody super happy. They're going to bring their dogs and it's a dog friendly town, right? Um, they're going to bring their dogs and they're going to be able to run around. And by the way, that means they're going to stay here and work longer and be happier. And it was over a million dollars, right? To, to do this project. Wow. And I said, okay, that, that sounds really cool. Let me talk to some employees though. And I went and talked to a number of employees and I will tell you, they all thought that was a horrible idea. <laughs> and um, the, the number one thing they told me is they said, can you just put in a cafeteria like where we can sit down and eat and, you know, and, and converse with our teammates and just take a break. And that cafeteria cost $200,000, $250,000. And it, it was such a good reminder for me of like, don't assume, right? Like, and by the way, putting in that cafeteria made people really happy. And it did exactly what, you know, he was trying to do without spending a million dollars and putting in something that wasn't going to make a difference. So the best thing I can advise people is, you know, is seek to understand in every organization is different, right? Is every organization, what drives their particular talent looks different from organization to organization. So there's not a silver bullet for this. It's about listening and understanding, you know, and, and not spending money where you don't have to and spending money where you do and make it most effective and efficient. And that's what gets people excited. Sorry, Adam, you're not getting your dog park. Well, it's Los Angeles. Everybody pushes their dogs in little carriers out here. So it's a whole different story. Who needs a park? Yeah, who needs a park? You got a carrying bag. It's all good. You know, I will say for that employer looking to put in a dog park, I mean, it's no different than employers looking at bringing in backup childcare or having on-site childcare or on-site, you know, brew pubs, right? We're seeing all shapes and sizes in today's world. And again, I think it is so prudent, as you said, Rebecca, to listen 
We see that day in and day out, consulting alongside your team and uh, really, really prudent feedback. That said, of course, there are some recommendations that also raise new concerns or liabilities to an organization. So we're equally in a position, obviously, Mm -hmm. to help weigh all of those pros and cons when working side by side. So unique perspectives there. Yeah. Clearly a big, big, big piece of total rewards is in fact compensation. What trends, different types of comp, uh, you know, trends or strategies are you seeing in the marketplace today? Yeah, gosh, there's so many different, you know, thinking about compensation and, you know, and the different facets of it and, you know, and also like, what are the behaviors you're trying to drive? What are you trying to accomplish? So when we think about the world of compensation, of course, there's base pay and what we might call fixed compensation, right? You get that as long as you're working and doing your job. And it's not necessarily, you know, there's some pieces around base pay comp that are influenced maybe by an organization that says, hey, we're going to pay for performance, right? That's another buzzword we hear a lot, pay for performance. And it's an interesting concept. It works great, except when you're working with a 3% pool, which most companies have. Like, how much can you really differentiate? But I think the point there is that you can influence base pay um, by performance, maybe by achieving greater skill set within the position. But then you start to go into different aspects of compensation. There's incentive compensation, what we call variable pay. You know, and we tend to think about variable pay in two ways. We think about short-term incentive pay. And those are your annual bonus programs where a lot of employees are on there. And they're tied to a particular performance. And, and the reason that those are so important is when those incentive plans are written, designed, and executed properly is they're they're driving the behaviors that you want to see from the talent in your organization. So they can be super powerful when they're done right. And they can be kind of a, you know, a bomb if you don't do them right. They just, you know, you start paying out money and people don't know why they're getting a bonus. And that's not ever what we'd want to do with that kind of money. The other part of incentive pay is what we call long-term incentive pay. So typically greater than a year, three to five year. And that's such things. I mean, you could go down stock and all the different tools in stock, whether it's options or strict uh, shares. Um, It could be a cash long-term incentive. And really, when you think about long-term incentive pay, again, you're really thinking about What are you trying to drive? Responsibilities, behaviors, and typically long-term incentive is really designed for maybe more senior roles, more executive roles, where you're trying to make the connection between if you executive make the company successful, then you'll get paid, right? But if you don't, then you don't get paid. Now, of course, we've all seen some of the horrific stuff that we've seen in the news where like a CEO will get fired and they had some kind of safety net in place where they get, you know, $50 million. And, you know, clearly those are not the plans that we think are the best, right? That's an employment agreement. So it gets kind of messy with what we're trying to drive. And the last piece, you know, that I would talk about is, um, sales compensation. And that's that's a really different, you know, kind of compensation that we're dealing with is that, you know, how you incent salespeople is very different 
than how you might incense someone working in finance or HR or accounting. So, you know, you, when you think about all these different levers that you have in compensation, I really think they're the compensation is and benefits is the foundation of total rewards. So you have to get that piece right. And, and that requires a lot of, you know, research, design, testing, analytics, and then that's actually what turns out to be the product that you want to have in place. If I'm hearing you right, it can be very complex because you have different generations in the workforce. So do you see organizations structuring compensation differently based on demographics, or do you just see them going in with one plan, or how complex are organizations really getting when they're trying to evaluate comp? Because we have such, we have a huge chunk of Gen X. We have some baby boomers still left in the workforce. We have the Gen Ys, and now we have the Gen Zs and whatever else is coming behind. Um, so how are organizations structuring or what do you see in organization structure to incentivize these different generations in the workforce? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And that's where the total rewards review comes in. Um, when you think about compensation, you probably don't want to have you know, wildly different compensation structures in place for generations, right? You want to keep that consistency and that fairness in the organization. But it, it, you know, it definitely brings up the the point of like, what might drive a 21-year-old might look different from a 60-year-old, right? They all want compensation, right? And they all don't think that they're paid enough. Like that is a common theme for sure. No. Um, <laughs> right. But what makes a difference is, you know, this idea of like when you listen to your employees and you start to understand what drives them, you know, some big hot trends that have come up to your point, Jared, is maybe baby boomers and maybe Gen X, like they're not as interested in, you know, tuition reimbursement or student loans, which is a huge thing for millennials and Gen Z, right, is these student loans are real. It's a big deal to them versus maybe Gen X is more interested in the retirement, you know, side of things. And, you know, and is there some flexibility there? And that's where when you think about if you design your total rewards program in a way that speaks to every single person in some way, that's the ideal way hmm. of designing a total rewards program. So I can pick the total rewards offerings that make the most sense for me and make the most impact on me. And and my colleagues standing to my right, who might be younger or older, might have different needs, right? But from a compensation standpoint, we usually leave that pretty much the same. It's where you can pull the other levers to get it all the other different you know, personalities that are in your organization. For sure. That makes a lot of sense. I know I view it very differently now that I'm in my forties than I did yeah. in my twenties or thirties, right? It, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I can say that I'm in my forties. We'll probably set some expectations too, right? You have all these things being offered. Hey, HR executive, don't expect hundred percent of people to enroll in your student tuition plan. And if I get 5%, that's not a bad thing. You're addressing the population that you have or whatever the number comes. Yes. And have you seen that? I mean, the, you know, to kind of timestamp this a bit, we're in Q2 of 21 and we've kind of seen the vaccines kick out and a year later of COVID. Have you seen that total rewards kind of shift from, um, I'm sure more virtual type of compensation or, or programs uh, could be a virtual fitness club or some sort of virtual holiday party. I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch of things, 
but yeah. it, it almost seems like that might be here for 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 good. It's not going away because we've seen some efficiencies and and, and benefits of those. Yeah. No. Yeah. I would say the biggest trend due to COVID as it relates to compensation, you know, is this notion of, right, everyone was working from home. A lot of people are still working from home and a lot of people don't want to stop working from home or they want some kind of hybrid, you know, setup. So one of the things that we saw was a huge trend in 2020 is people, and I'll use an example, right? Like people might've been working in the the Bay Area where we know it is incredibly expensive, not only from a cost of labor standpoint, what employers have to pay people, but from a cost of living, it doesn't, it's crazy. And so what we saw in 2020 is people were like, well, shoot, if I'm working from home, I'm gonna go work from Kansas City, you know, where my family is or where it's cheaper for me to live. And, and employers, because they they weren't, you know, reacting at the time, they were saying, well, work wherever you want to, because you, you can right now. And they were still paying them like they were p- living in the Bay Area, right? And so all of a sudden, there was this like, you know, rash of like, oh my gosh, what do we do with geographical differentials, mm-hmm. right? Is it where you live? Is it where the office is located? Um, and I think employers are really starting to realize, wow, we have some flexibility with that. And if people can be just as wildly successful sitting in Kansas City as they can in San Francisco, why would we pay that kind of money, you know, that premium? And so there was a lot of movement around how do we how do we change our geographical differences from our, our pay perspective and our structures? Um, and then, Adam, to your point, there was a lot of other things going on, but that was a real hot topic for compensation professionals and scrambling to readjust their structures. It's got to be a tough conversation to have, right? You were making X and now you're making Y. Did that create a lot of disruption in the marketplace where, sure, I get that you need to do that for geographic reasons, but thanks, Mr. and Mrs. Employer, I'm now going to move someplace else. Have we seen that disruption because of that or maybe not as much? Well, you know, it's always an interesting conversation. It's always existed, right? Is that when someone's moving from Kansas City to San Francisco, they're like, great, I get this big increase and everything's fine. And when they move back, you say, well, you're not keeping that premium Mm -hmm. from working in San Francisco. And so people, as you can imagine, people like it when they get the increase. They don't like it when it gets taken away. But I think, you know, what HR professionals can do in that you know, in that space is have a really clearly defined philosophy, approach, and structure that's based in fact. And, and you know, this notion of cost of labor is in fact based, you know, based in real numbers, what's happening in our nation. And if you build it from that standpoint, you can have a very educated and reasonable conversation with people. You know, and, you know, Adam, on, on some level, you can just tell someone, here's the price of an apartment in San Francisco. Here it is in Kansas city. Like it's, it's almost like that kind of simple. Um, people never like when their pay is taken away, but I think if you can explain why it is and how it fits in the structure and how it makes sense and how on some level they're still making the same, you know, because you're now just kind of evening out those cost of labor differences, it seems to go okay. It's when we're not based in fact and we're him and Han and you can't answer people's questions directly. I think that's when they get frustrated. I think this is a conversation we'll have a lot more of right as we look to the future. There are some big ticket employers out there that have come out with very 
distinct policy around this, but there are many, 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 I think, still scrambling to figure that out. At the same time, we see employers, and I'm sure, Rebecca, you are as well, but they're going from a local or regional placement and flipping the switch to national overnight. Their candidate pool goes from, you know, onesie, twosie, or a handful or dozens to thousands, right? So the war on talent has definitely changed right? And how they're recruiting or potentially retaining will hinge on some of these comp strategies that align with those goals. I know we also see concerns on the leave side, right? So now suddenly you've got someone that's residing here in Minnesota and maybe now is suddenly in Colorado, different leave structures, different policy and requirements. So all Mm -hmm. areas we're having to keep close tabs on with this changing workforce dynamic. What other trends did you see through COVID you think are pertinent for employers to be considering at this time? You know, the the one thing that I saw that came out of COVID was this reminder to HR professionals that you have to, you know, stay on, on top of this and try to be ahead of it. Um, there was a lot of stuff that we learned from COVID about, there were, there were so many employers that said, we can never have a virtual workforce. And yet we did, you know, and there were so many employers that panicked because they didn't know what it meant and they didn't, they didn't understand all the levers they could pull. Right. So for example, when there was that panic of what does this mean and what does this mean for our business? It was this idea of like, we need to cut everybody's salary. We need to bring expenses way down. And, you know, and that was from a place of understandable panics. We didn't, we didn't understand what a global pandemic really meant and how it was going to impact our business. But in those situations, you know, what was really helpful during COVID is like, you know, is, whoa, like, let's think about this for a second. You know, instead of cutting salaries, like, could we shut off 401k contributions just for a little bit? you know, until we can get our arms around this and stop being so reactive. And, you know, and maybe we say, hey, we're going to freeze bonuses. Like maybe we'll come back to it. But it's it's just this idea of like as an HR professional, how do we stay, you know, on the leading edge of these things, right? And when we saw the pandemic happening in China, like could we have been preparing for that here? And that's, you know, and sometimes it's a little bit of hindsight, but those are the kind of things I think HR people it's tough, right? Is you have to kind of be on the leading edge of those things. And if you're versed and you're, you know, and thoughtful about everything you offer is that you can help, you know, company leaders make really good decisions um, instead of, you know, knee jerk reactions or, you know, cause your employees are just as scared. And then you come in and say, I'm going to cut your salaries. And now they're really scared. Right. And, and if we could, you know, just as HR professionals, you know, sit at that table with a, a strong voice and strong opinions. And, and frankly, it's about options, right? Is like, hey, let's try this for a little bit. Let's worry about cutting salaries like down the road and let's not panic people and we're trying to keep moving. So I think there was, you know, HR was thrust into, you know, into the spotlight on this because, you know, what do we do? How do we get people working from home? How do we keep our culture together? How do we stay connected? How do we still run benefits when no one can go to the doctor? So there was a lot happening there. And um, it was such a time for HR to shine. And I think we, you know, we really took a opportunity to think about how can we show up in those situations? Excellent. There's there's almost this Herculean effort to react, right? Like you just mentioned, which also creates Mm -hmm. liability and and things that we have to make sure the T's are crossed and dies audited and 
I guess we've seen this this kind of almost HR world become the pseudo attorney with what they have to do and coaching <laughs> them to make sure they don't you know not, not screw it up. That's not the right term, but protect the organization. And we see all these laws that come into place that are just it seems like they're every month. I don't know if that's just me. Like Every um, month, every if, week. If I, was <laughs> say, right? I think our compliance team has an update every week. That's basically the case. I think we've seen a big growth in the in the pay equity side as well and kind of grown into what that's seen. And um, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on where that's been and where that's going because we have seen a great evolvement uh, to, to kind of minimize that gap and hopefully make that a non-issue moving forward. And as you answer that, I just want to say, I am so glad that we're starting to see this trend come to light even more. I'm so glad. It's so needed and so much long overdue. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The spirit in which these, you know, legislative acts are written is spot on. It's what, you know, as I've kind of jumped into it and keep in mind these equal pay acts, you know, they're, they're being adopted by states. Right. Um, whereas like in compensation, one of the things we worry about on the compliance side is the Fair Labor Standards Act, which dictates um, it really kind of starts with a baseline. Like we all start as non-exempt. Right. We should all be eligible for overtime. And then it's our responsibility to say, but which positions are exempt hmm. from overtime? And it's a really it's a really antiquated and painful, you know, legislation that's, you really have to work at. And there's a lot of effort and thought that goes into making sure that's right, because it's a huge compliance risk for companies if they don't do it right. The equal pay acts that are coming out from different states are absolutely trending in that direction, right? There is, um, there is responsibility behind these. And that was the whole thing with the Fair Labor Standards Act, right? Is making sure that companies were being held accountable to doing the right thing for people. And these equal pay acts are doing that too. And while different states are adopting different statutes, they really have that vein of, you know, the spirit of what you're trying to do is you're really trying to make sure that people are treated fairly improperly. Um, and as I started diving into this, you know, in into the different states and working through this, you know, there was a part of me that was thinking, you know, I wonder, is it that bad? You know, we've really been focusing this on, you know, for, you know, some a while now. And I would just say it is, right? It is time for companies to take this seriously. And, you know, when I walk into companies, it's a you have to unravel years of practice, right? And what this act does, it's such an interesting consequence of this act is, you know, I walk into companies and they say, oh, you know, this, this guy was in this position and, you know, he wants to take a step down and, you know, and we don't want to decrease his pay because he's a really nice guy. And, you know, and in that time, right, they're trying to be nice to this particular guy, but the unattended consequences, right, is now this guy makes more than everybody else who's been doing the job longer than that person. Mm. Right. And so, it's this interesting way of like businesses having to step, take a step back and saying, if I do this, what does it create? Right. And then the second thing, you know, when you think about these acts is there are provisions in them that say you can't ask what someone was earning somewhere else. Like, so then this goes back to compensation is that you have to have strong compensation structures in place 
because you have to be able to make an offer that's competitive and you have to make sure that that offer doesn't cause internal equity issues. So these, you know, when you think about our recruiting teams out there and our hiring managers, there's a lot more that goes into it, which is great. And it's a lot harder when you don't have a structure in place. But you can't ask people, what did they use to make? Um, we have had more transparency around when you post a position, you actually have to post it. You have to put ranges around it. And so it is creating a transparency that's great. And I will just say that there is a lot of effort and work that still needs to be done. And these acts, while they're, you know, there's probably some some clarity and some work that needs to happen around these acts to help employers understand it better. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's, it's definitely coming from the right intention and the spirit of the acts. And there's a lot to do with it. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah. I mean, obviously a lot has changed on the heels of COVID. And I would argue during that same time and space in America today, we've seen a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion mm -hmm. demands uh, that are shedding light and bringing organizations to challenge, you know, historic concepts and or practice in new ways. So, mm -hmm. so many wonderful things colliding here that will transform the way that we do business and or hire, recruit and retain. I think what we're seeing from a DEI perspective, this pay equity conversation is becoming front and center, right? Yeah. It ultimately will change the game, uh, whether folks are prepared or not prepared. But you're right, structure will be huge. We're seeing mm -hmm. barriers removed potentially around those provisions that you can't ask those questions uh, right. about what you're being paid today and others in your shoes within an organization, any potential uh, threats against that same very ask. So it is a, it's a unique time. It's an exciting time. I do think we're going to see a lot of new opportunity and or challenges on the preface of this. This, but excited, right, to be able to share some of your knowledge and expertise with those listening in here today and certainly welcome the opportunity to further this conversation as we look to the future. Yeah, Rebecca, thank you. This was educational for me. I mean, this is such a complex topic and so much for mm -hmm. HR professionals to wrap their head around, whether it be total rewards and compensation, and then you throw in that the equity of pay and, and everything that goes in that. There's a lot that goes in that these HR professionals have to manage day in and day out. So we're grateful for your words and everything that you shared with us today. Yeah, it was nice being with you. Thank you. I don't know about you guys. I'm scared, but I'm luckily we have Rebecca <laughs> exactly. to help uh, exactly. tackle the fight. So thank you, Rebecca, for being on the team. Onward, upward, good times ahead. Thanks again, Rebecca. Appreciate you all listening in today, and we'll see you for our next episode. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Benefits Breakdown. This episode, in combination with our previous episode titled How to Help Your Medicare-Eligible Employees, is eligible for one SHRM credit. If you haven't yet, please go back and listen to How to Help Your Medicare-Eligible Employees. The code for SHRM credit is 227ZUGM. That's 22-7Z as in Zulu, U as in uniform, G as in golf, M as in Mike. Remember, this code expires after December 31st, 2022. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to rate review and subscribe and be sure to tune in to our next episode.